0: Hello, everybody. How is everybody feeling this week? How are you, Kyle?
1: I'm feeling wonderful. Thank you very much. How are you?
0: I'm excellent. Um, so we were just looking at this. Mm-hmm. Start with this. Um, apparently, and this is so sad. I know you're going to shed a tear. Since Biden has taken office, mm-hmm. CNN's primetime viewership in the key demo, which is the only thing that matters for advertisers, has dropped by almost half. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> yeah.
1: Whoa. Yeah. The exact number 47%, which is out of this world. Um, I mean, it's funny because you when Trump would go around bragging that like I save uh, these news outlets because they are is Trump all day It's Trump, Trump, Trump. It's Trump all day long. I've saved him. Just me alone. I saved him. I'm so interesting. People want to know what Tripp is doing. That turned out to be true. Like, it was 100% he, manif- true. he manifested that into reality because they would like kind of watch his every move and, and make a scandal about everything. But it's kind of amazing that people actually watched their drivel coverage of him because it was never good. It was never like they covered the real scandals.
0: Yeah, but they know? felt, I guess they felt like invested in it.
1: And it felt they, like a reality show. Yeah. It
0: felt like not just a reality show. They gave them the illusion like by watching their shitty shows, they were doing something about it. You know, like mm, they don't like this point. guy. They want to get rid of them. They want to go in a different direction. And so, yeah, I think that was like that was like the conceit of these networks is basically like if you watch us and you're engaged in this, mm-hmm. then you're actively doing something to resist Trump. And so maybe this is like the best part of the Biden era <laughs> is that cable news, because in by the way, we should say it's not just CNN. MSNBC has seen a massive fall off. Fox also saw a huge drop off, but theirs was more right after the election Mm -hmm. um, when they, you know, dared to be accurate about the fact that Joe Biden won and didn't go along with all the Stop the Steal stuff. And they saw a bleed um, over to Newsmax and One American News Network. So they saw their drop a little bit earlier on. But all of these networks are completely suffering. And we also looked at I think you might have covered this on your show, too. We covered it on Rising that also the like the political news websites, traffic is down mm-hmm. something yeah. like 30%. Mm-hmm. So people are taking the back to normal, back to brunch thing very seriously, and they're just completely tuning out.
1: Well, which leads to my next point, which is, what if people want to go back to that in 2024? What do you mean? They back wanna... to Trump? Well, well, you, were, you just made a good point where you were just talking about how people feel like if they're watching CNN in the era of Trump, like they're they're doing something. They're partaking in activism and they're being a good citizen or whatever. Mm -hmm. That might be true. But if that is true, people generally do want to feel useful. So what if they want to go back to that, to caring all the time and following politics like it's a reality show? Like, that fact is kind of terrifying because there is a part of me that thinks people might want to go back to that Trump era and sort of be more invested in the day-to-day as Mm. opposed to right now. Biden's half asleep 90% of the time, you know, like on the one hand, yes, there's an argument for that feeling better. But on the other hand, you know, the day to day nonsense to a lot of people was exciting. I'm not saying it's exciting to me. It's not. I think you did a terrible job covering Trump. But like, is there a point there that like people want to feel excited? They want to follow the day to day? They want to feel like it's part of it's a reality show and they're watching it and they're partaking in it. What do you think? An
0: Interesting question. I mean, I think it's almost inevitable that Right now... the cable news network, like, they just can't figure out, Fox can't really figure out a way to hit Biden. So they're doing, like, Dr. Seuss, and they're going on, all in on the Cardi Mm -hmm. B versus Candace Owens, and was the WAPA, you know, appearance at the Grammys too much, or whatever. So, they're trying with that. That's not really working. CNN and MSNBC, they're just cycling through different things. nothing, And it's a really thin, very thin gruel that they're working on because, None of these people, part of the problem is that none of them have a critique of Biden that actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. Right. So they're not going all in on like, why aren't you fighting for the $15 minimum wage? What happened to $2,000 checks? Why did you mean test these things? Why are these provisions like great? Good job with the relief bill. It's okay. Mm -hmm. These provisions are temporary. Why? So Mm -hmm. what does the bigger picture look like? Um, They don't do that kind of, first of all, policy based analysis, Mm -hmm. but also from the left. And so You know, MSNBC, they're just cheerleading for him. That's kind of their role. CNN, I think, doesn't really know what to be at this point um, because they were all so invested in just this anti-Trump ideology. And as we said, Fox is just trying, like, spinning their wheels on the culture war. I think it's inevitable that at some point they're going to find something else that hits the way that Trump hits or close to the way that Trump hits, whether that's him coming back in 2024, some other figure That they make into unique evil, stepping into the scene. Like they're going to find something to. Hard to say because he was kind of uniquely gifted in pushing all the buttons and making people feel. And this was the important part. And this is how you made people feel like they were doing something by showing up to watch Rachel Maddow every night. Like this was a central part resisting trump was a central part of people's identities yeah and so to be part to have that part of your identity involved consuming these certain news sources and now that's just all kind of evaporated
1: he's a uniquely american phenomenon is what he is and you made a point i forget the exact wording but you said like Trump is a mix of pure ego and narcissism and capitalism all in one. You know what I mean? You said Mm -hmm. something along those lines. Like, he's like the fake macho man boss, just like... It's just so American in every way and, yeah. and celebrity oh that was the other part of it it was like celebrity narcissism capitalism. and capitalism mm-hmm. all put together and mix that with his particular skill set of like being very punchy when he talks and knowing how to press the buttons of the media it was just like the perfect storm for the endless hair on fire coverage and so I'm I don't know if anything can really replace that like you'd have to go back and look what were the ratings like you know during the beginning of the war on terror, for example, mm. where, you know, the unique enemy was Al Qaeda and radical Islamic extremism. What were those ratings like? What are the ratings like now that it's, you know, Matt Taibbi's hate ink, the idea, right? Like that now your enemy is your fellow American and, and Trump's the big boogeyman. But an interesting point to make, though, in this conversation is that they're down 47 percent when you look at how your show is doing, for example, your show is actually doing really well at a time when the rest of the media has a giant lull. your show is doing well. And I think the reason for that is it's, it's entertaining, but it's also informative. So, you know, you and I have had this belief for a long time that like you can be educational and informational while also being entertaining, but they seem to think in mainstream media that educational and informational by definition, is boring and useless.
0: Well, and not only that... We never, and you never, built your show around the idea that, like, electing this one politician would be the solution to the problems. Yeah, right?
1: that's true. Although Bernie would have helped a lot. Bernie would
0: have helped a lot. <laughs> that is true. But, you know, the, the there's a deeper structural analysis there. So there's no yes. illusion mm-hmm. of, like, oh, Joe Biden's in, so we can turn it, like, it's all solved yes, now. Yes, we can yes. turn it off. Or Trump lost, so, shit, what are we going to do now? I guess I'm just going to stop paying attention to politics and not caring anymore. So... I think that's part of why... I think that's part of why Rising has continued to do well. I think it's part of why you see a lot of independent creators continuing to flourish. I mean, so our guest today is Matt Taibbi, who Mm -hmm. you just alluded to, who, of course, is like crushing it on Substack. Because he has that deeper structural analysis, we're going to talk to him a lot about his reporting on the financial crisis and how that really sort of unlocked his understanding of American politics, which, again, goes way, way more levels deep than the stupid left-right food fight that you get on cable news or this idea that anyone mainstream Democrat or mainstream Republican is going to be any kind of a real answer. And so I think that's a big part of why those types of outlets, writers, thinkers, analysts are succeeding, even in a time when overall news consumption is just like in the
1: toilet. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, Another story that I wanted to bring up to talk to you about is that Spain is doing a pilot program with a four-day work week, and it's the biggest one I think that's ever been done because there's about 200 companies that are participating in it. About 6,000 people are participating in this hmm. program. It's a four-day work week. It's 32-hour week. Um, what do you think about that?
0: I mean, I think it's great. You know, it's really, it's very interesting. Um, and this is part of actually why. I think the UBI conversation in America has been so significant and why I was fascinated by Andrew Yang's candidacy because in America, we have come to accept that like work is the thing. It's like the center of your identity. You know, there used to be this notion like, oh, if you got wealthier, then you would work less and you would have it be. But it's actually just taken over more and more of our lives. And also, you know, I'm very glad personally that women are accepted fully into the workforce now, more or less. But you also you went from having the one-income household for being the norm, to the two-income household, So everybody's working as the center of identity, et cetera. And it is one way, and I think you and I are very, very, very fortunate to have work that we find really meaningful Mm -hmm. and really fulfilling and feel like it makes some kind of a difference. It is one way, one path to have meaning in your life. But it is not the only way (laughs) to Mm -hmm. find meaning in your life. And in fact, for most of human history, like wage-earning work was not what people were engaged in and they found other pathways to meaning. So it's part of why. So I think shrinking the work week is one step towards kind of that recognition that work is not the only thing worthwhile in human life. Um, And I also think it ties in with the UBI conversation because that was kind of the central critique there of, look, there are a lot of things that people can do that that are meaningful, whether it's raising a family, whether it's work in the community, whether it's care for, you know, not only your kids, but maybe your elderly parents. There are a lot of ways that people find meaning that aren't centered around a job. And we need to be reorienting our culture around different concepts of how people derive meaning. So that's like a big, bigger view. But in general, I think it's great. And I think, you know, the idea of what did you say? It's 30,
1: 32 hours for the full week. That's the full work, 32 hours for
0: the full week. I mean, that's still a lot of hours of your life that you're spending at work. White collar people tend to. Have a little bit of a different, I think, orientation around work of looking to derive all of these things from versus like. This is just a means to pay the bill and also tend to ha- be treated like basically human beings, more like human beings in their work as well and have more autonomy, which also correlates based on the research with a higher level of satisfaction in your job. Whereas service workers, blue collar workers often don't um, have those same benefits of just I mean, forget about even wages and health care and benefits like just being treated like human beings. I've been covering closely the Amazon um, warehouse organizing efforts down in Bessemer, Alabama. And they talked to the lead organizer and he's like, look, we get fired if we go to the bathroom. Like people get terminated from this job for just like not being on task every second of the day to the extent that people literally get fired for going to the bathroom. So that level of dehumanization creates a kind of different relationship to work where there's no illusion around this is going to be my source of meaning in my life.
1: Well, to your point, I mean – There's a poll that came out from Gallup in 2013, and it's only 13% of Americans feel, quote, engaged in their work. Hmm. So, And I think that's an interesting word. That's an interesting way to think of it because, yeah, that is one way of saying, like, are you really happy with your job? Mm. Do you feel like Engaged in the work? Do you feel like you want to do it? Would you do this if you didn't have to? Yes, that's the exact right way of thinking about it, in my opinion. And if you were to ask it in those words, I have a feeling that 13% might even shrink a little bit more. You know, where you say, Would you wake up and do this if money was no issue at all? And so we're being kind maybe by saying 13% of people feel that way in the workforce. Maybe it's as low as 5%. Maybe it's as low as 1%. Yeah. And so that creates a big problem. The issue is you have a lot of people who are feeling sort of like, you know, nihilistic, in a sense, really Mm -hmm. darkly nihilistic. And so how do we address that problem? Well, one way is to, you know, and this is a more of a futuristic idea, and maybe a little bit of a utopian idea. But one way is to sort of automate all the grunt work and still pay people for the fruits of the labor of the machines, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, but perhaps that's a little too far in the future to have that conversation now. But in the interim, yeah, the, re- the conversation is, how do we get more people into meaningful work? Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can't do that, because I think to some extent there's always going to be the grunt work, at least in, in the modern day. So how do we reduce the pain and the suffering that goes hand in hand with having that kind of work? How do we give people more time off and make them feel like they can find their own creative pursuits and meaning and purpose. And so, yeah, this is one way of tackling that problem. And I think a lot of people don't know the history of this. I didn't know the history of this for a long time. But in 1933, the Senate actually passed a bill in the U.S. to make the workweek 30 hours. So we effectively passed like a four day work week, but it didn't get through the House of Representatives. And it was the legislation was sort of replaced with this New Deal compromise that also made the work week 40 hours and not 30 hours. Hmm. So wild to think about wild to think about. Here's another thing that's wild to think about. William Howard Taft, conservative Republican president, said, I think every American should have up to three months paid vacation time by law. Hmm. Now, if Bernie Sanders were to say that, he'd get laughed out of the room. There's a conservative Republican in the 1930s that was saying that. So, yes, in Europe, there is, and it varies country to country, but generally speaking, there's this different approach to life where they have a more reasonable work-life balance. Here in the U.S., like you said, it's almost like we're forced to view work as the thing. You have to find your meaning. You have to find your purpose in that. And if only 13% of the country feels engaged, man, you got a problem on your hands. So you need to shorten the work week. You need to provide people material well-being through a UBI, for example, to give people the opportunity to find more meaningful work or to have, you know, more money to do what they want with their Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, this is honestly, this is a big conversation. I feel like it's the conversation because you're talking about people's happiness and well-being and- You know, if it you, should be the conversation anyway. If you create a system that gives people more meaning and purpose, on that alone, anxiety, stress, all these negative psychological consequences, they'll be reduced massively, and that's yeah. everything.
0: Yeah, it is. I feel like in America, we have a few of these sort of we have a few of these myths that we hold out to people to keep them running in the race and to keep them from questioning, like, the structure that we have. And one of them is the American dream, right? This idea that anybody, any boy or girl who tries hard enough can make it to the top completely ignores the fact that, I mean, it's becoming harder and harder and harder to actually move out of whatever class you're born into. Um, so that has become increasingly complete mythology, and it always has been mythology to a certain to a certain um, extent. But I think that. This idea of finding your meaning in work is a similar type of mythology. Yeah, there are people like you and me who are extraordinarily fortunate to have that in our work and love what we do, talk about it when we're not doing it, Mm -hmm. like central to our lives, find get a lot out of it. But it's actually a vanishingly small percentage of the population. And so if you make that as like that is the way to find meaning and purpose. And oh, by the way, um, community institutions in America like fallen apart. I mean, there's very little community and connectivity and pathways to meaning that even exist in America outside of work. Yeah, you're setting yourself up for misery and you create this sense of shame in people that they aren't achieving the American dream and they aren't finding that work that makes their heart sing and provides all the keys to meaning and fulfillment in their lives because you keep telling people like that's what it should be and that's possible and that's what you should be aiming towards. So I feel like it is one of these other sort of like oppressive mythologies. And when people take it on themselves like I've failed because I'm not advancing or I'm not or I'm miserable in my job and it's like somehow my fault Mm -hmm. that keeps them from any sort of activism that questions the systems
1: and the structures that are in place. Right. So when they view it as more of a personal individual problem.
0: Yeah, it's my fault. It's my failing. And you get, you know, people who are held on as like, see, they did it and they started at the bottom and here they are now.
1: Yeah, and I I do want to add one more fact to the conversation because I do think this is interesting, but the the socialist answer to this problem that we're discussing now is to democratize the workplace because if you democratize the workplace and give people a more direct say in the direction of their company and in the direction of your life as a result of the fact that you're now controlling the company, you empower people, Yeah, you know, and this gets to your point, what you said about Alabama and the workers that are trying to unionize in Alabama at Amazon. And, you know, um, You can either be working for somebody in like a semi-dictatorial, tyrannical type sense, or you can have a union which helps to get rid of that extreme power imbalance and make it a little more manageable. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you go all the way and have some sort of market socialism where companies are um, democratized and that alone might give people the sense of more meaning, more purpose, and it might have these positive effects that we're talking about in regards to UBI or four-day work week or the other things.
0: There's research that backs that up, too. Mm -hmm. The more autonomy and the more power and control you have over your own day in your workplace, the more like you feel like you have a say and the decisions aren't just arbitrary and you're just doing what you are told by a boss, the greater fulfillment. Those things, totally. those things mm-hmm. are correlated. So look, there's always going to be some work that's not uh, like something that anyone's like super excited to do. Mm-hmm. But those factors of having control and autonomy and being engaged just, I mean, it's really just like being treated as a human being mm-hmm. in your workplace are really strongly correlated with um, higher satisfaction on the job. There was one other story, Kyle, that um, I thought was really important that I know you really were excited about. We were talking about how the Biden content is not as strong as the Trump content. And I kind of feel like I feel like that's a little unfair, frankly, because Biden does have some great content. Um, The problem is, like, he is... He doesn't do his presser. He's just, he's not out there a lot. Well,
1: apparently he did a presser. So we
0: only get a little bit, little taste of it. He did a
1: presser, yes. So apparently, um, you know, he, I guess it was for St. Patrick's Day specifically. He decided to talk to some reporters. Okay. You know, I didn't. Nice of him. I should have looked for the video of this. I don't know if it exists, though. I think it probably should. I really want to see this on video. You have no idea how badly I want to see this on video. But uh, so I stumbled across this last night. I'm going to read this to everybody, okay? President Biden going deep on the Irishness of his family, recounting his memories of his Aunt Gertie. <laughs> Two things in particular. This is what Biden said in the press conference, talking about his Irishness on St. Patrick's Day. Quote, she was the best backscratcher in the world. <laughs> and no offense to the Greeks, but she made the best rice pudding in the world. <laughs>
0: It's class. like I couldn't even come up with that for Biden. It's so perfectly Biden.
1: So I uh, so I stumbled across this last night. One of the Chapo guys retweeted it. I love the Chapo guys. They're hilarious. And like they do sort of like an absurdist comedy thing that I'm really into that they always make me laugh. And so I read that and I'm thinking they're doing a bit like this is a bit. This is Felix doing a bit joking around. And then I see the account that tweeted it. I'm like, I've seen this guy before. Let me click it. It's a Washington Post reporter reporting on what Biden actually said in a press conference at the White House. I was like, this can't be real. How is this real? It reminded me of the thing he said where uh, he was on Jay Leno's show about cars and he's standing there like, God, my dad could drive a car. Oof. My favorite
0: part is when he's like, no offense to the Greeks, but best rice pudding ever. It's
1: just like every part of that. I don't like how did how did this actually happen? How is this a real thing that Joe Biden said? It's
0: just it's also like such an old man thing to be to have this view of, like, different ethnic white group and really, like, deeply associate with your Irish heritage. I don't know. Do the Greeks even make rice pudding? I have no idea. Like,
1: <laughs> no offense to the Greeks. She made the best <laughs> rice pudding in the world.
0: I was thinking about in the debate when he got asked, like, a question about education— and went on this meandering all over the place answer. I think he managed, yeah, to like keep like the
1: record player on at night.
0: Afghanistan at some point. make and sure the kids
1: hear words
0: right. the and phone, like the thing. Turn the record player on. <laughs>
1: So if he were to do more press conferences, yeah. Yeah,
0: he's got great potential. It would be
1: fascinating. Yes. I I would enjoy every second of it. (laughs) Anyway, enough messing around. Why don't you go ahead and introduce our lovely guest?
0: (laughs) Um, Okay, so Matt Taibbi barely needs an introduction. Amazing, longtime writer for The Rolling Stone. Now he's independent at Substack. He also co-hosts a great podcast called Useful Idiots with another friend, Katie Halper. They've just actually also gone independent and are now on Substack as well. Written a bunch of books. Um, One that I always come back to that I'll ask him about is Hate Inc., phenomenal journalist on the financial crisis. Someone who, you know, for me, was someone who certainly helped me really understand that period of time, has really helped me understand American politics, someone I've respected for a long, long time. Joining us now, Matt Taibbi. Matt Taibbi, it is great to see you.
2: Great to see you, Crystal.
0: Um, so I actually wanted to—we okay. want to ask you some policy stuff too. But I actually wanted to get into you because you're a very interesting person and have had this very like unusual trajectory. First of all, how did you end up as a reporter in the Soviet Union? Like, what was your path to that occurring?
2: So I uh, I was raised in a kind of a family of journalists. Uh, my father was a reporter my uh stepmother was also a um uh an anchor person um my godparents were reporters so everybody I knew growing up was a reporter i never wanted to do that growing up uh but i um when i graduated from college i didn't have um any other life skills and i had uh i had this idea of going overseas to the soviet union and the only way i knew how to support myself was to do the family business so i started um stringing for various organizations, and uh, I was trying to be a novelist, uh, but it just didn't work out. I don't have any talent for fiction, it turns out. So I just ended up continuing to do this.
1: So, uh, Matt, I... Came to know you first and foremost from your reporting in Rolling Stone during the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. And you really were probably my number one source where I learned the most about that. Um, But when I went back to research a little bit for this discussion with you, um, I learned a lot of things. I was shocked by the number of things that you had done in your life and what happened before that. Um, And so. The first thing I want to ask you is about when you were in Uzbekistan, which is interesting enough. But is it true that you were deported from Uzbekistan for criticizing the president?
2: Well, I was definitely deported from Uzbekistan. Um, what happened was and this is another sort of funny start of career. Uh, type story. Um, I was stringing, as I mentioned, in um, in Russia. I was trying to do it from St. Petersburg. So I was tr- trying to drum up business as somebody who spoke Russian and uh, was selling to uh, sort of wire services and other newspapers. But there were just too many people in, in St. Petersburg who uh, were trying to do the same thing, who had more experience than I was. So I had this brilliant idea that I would move to a place that was significantly more remote than uh, St. Petersburg, and uh, established myself as the only stringer in an entire area and just sort of wait for something to happen. And I kind of randomly picked on the map Uzbekistan, which was a faraway place where people spoke Russian, and I moved there. Now, I did not exactly have the proper documentation to do that. I went there um, on a student visa. uh, But I settled in Uzbekistan, uh, which didn't cost a whole lot of money. <clears throat> and I started sending little things back and forth to various Western outlets. And um, there were a couple of the, f- the first stories that I wrote were just little notices for, for wire services. I did one on uh, the first anniversary of Independence Day for Uzbekistan, which just sort of casually mentioned that there had been some controversy uh, controversy about President Islam Karimov, uh, and uh, then I wrote another one about an earthquake that happened. So that that was that was the validation of my idea that I that I would go to a place and wait for something to happen, uh, and an earthquake happened. So I wrote about that, uh, and what happened was um, I think somebody in the what they called the f it was actually the Služba Nacionalne Bezopasnosti, so that's the SNB saw that somebody Western was writing something that was critical of the president. Then they hunted me down, uh, you know, which wasn't hard to find. I had listed my address and they knocked on my door and I had to go through the whole thing with the light bulb and everything where they interrogated me about what I was doing in the country. Um, Actually, I wasn't really doing anything except that. And I was playing baseball for the Uzbek national baseball team. Uh, but they gave me a ticket and escorted me on a train and that was it. I was deported from Uzbekistan. (laughs) Oh my God.
0: Well, so when you go, first of all, what is it like when you show up in Uzbekistan? Did you know anyone how do you end up on the Uz? I love how you just casually throw out like, oh, and I was playing for the Uzbek National yeah, Baseball Team, <laughs> as, if well, that's as a one, side as point. One does right <laughs> as one does when they arrive in Uzbekistan. Um, and, then, and then, did you know that what you were doing was like risky in this way? Did you have any expectation that authorities might be knocking on your door? Like, what are you reporting here?
2: Um. I, I didn't know vaguely that there, there were some risks involved. I was 21 years old and I was very young and very stupid and didn't really think clearly about what I was doing. I actually have two very funny stories about how that all panned out. When they, uh, when they knocked on my door, um, they came in and they just immediately started searching my apartment and they found my uh, computer. And one of the agents was was opening up my computer and going through my drive, and I had a student visa, so immediately I was kind of busted because they saw that I was writing about things that probably was was not academic work, and the um and they started interrogating me, and they're so what's the computer for? And I said, well, you know, I like to write sometimes, you know, it's a recreational thing for me, and uh, and the guy said to me, this is a this is a secret agent, this is from the SNB. The guy says, do you have any? Do you have any talent? Do you write poems? Uh, well, first he asked me, do you write poems? And I said, um, I do sometimes write poems. And he goes, do you have any talent? Uh, and I said, I have no talent at writing poetry. And he handed the computer back to me and he said, you should give it up. Uh, and that was that was uh, basically the end of that interrogation. Um, and then uh, – but no, I, I I came to this country and, you know, in, in Russia, basically, they have a saying or the Soviet Union, they have a saying that everything is done through the bottle. And um, all you do is you hang out in the middle of the city and, and get drunk with people. And that's how you how you learn and to meet various people in the city. That's how I ended up finding the baseball players. And. Uh, making a bunch of contacts. And I thought it was all very fun uh, a- until that happened. Um, sadly, when I got kicked out of the country, I sent my mother a telegram that said essentially KGB kicking me out. We'll call from Moscow. When she got it on her end, it said KGB kicking me gut. Uh, we'll call Moscow. And she had this panic attack. Uh, so those are those are my two funny stories about that.
1: Oh, wow. God. Um. So I mean, I have to dig deeper on the on the professional baseball thing <laughs> because again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but in my research, very detailed research, I looked at Wikipedia um I learned that you not only played professional baseball but you also played professional basketball in Mongolia
2: mm-hmm yes, this was later um. By then I had moved back to Moscow and I was working uh, at an expatriate newspaper called the Moscow Times. I I started off as a sports editor there, then I was doing sort of regular journalism, you know, actually I did a lot of crime reporting for them. Um, But I played basketball in college and so every day um, after work I would go to Moscow State University, uh, which if you look up is this it's this amazing, gigantic, beautiful style, Stalin skyscraper, uh, and they have all these basketball courts there. So it was a cool place to play street basketball, and they had these great pickup games. And one day I was playing pickup, and there was a Mongolian guy in the game uh, who was pretty good. And we we sat down, we started talking, and he said, "You know, there's a league in Mongolia, the Mongolian Basketball Association uh, Association, the MBA." which is um, the only league in the world that plays with NBA rules. They had a 24-second clock. They had the same distance for the three-pointer and everything. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And I, um, I went to my boss the next day. I quit and uh, got on the Trans-Siberian Railroad and moved to Mongolia and got a tryout uh, and ended up on this uh, this team that was called the, the Ulaanbaatar Mountain Eagles and ultimately came to be known as the Mongolian Rodman, believe it or not
1: the MBA how did you mm-hmm. commu- like how did you communicate with people what was their like culture shock and also like how good are you at baseball and basketball because to be a professional <laughs> in any context is like really really difficult i don't think people realize how hard it is to be a pro at anything
2: so this was this was pretty low level sports i would say it was the the basketball in mongolia i would say was on par with Division two II or three uh, college in America. Um, I had played college basketball in uh, in the states, and you know I'm okay, but I'm sure. I mean I'm I'm six foot two and a half or so, and you know I was playing forward in Mongolia, so that should tell you something about that league. But you know they they actually paid me. Uh, you know officially I made. I guess a hundred dollars a month, something like that, and I had a I had my own apartment. Um, but the Mongolians were very they were crazy about basketball. There was a whole backstory there where <clears throat> one of their senior economic officials had been a student in New York um, at Columbia in 1994 and had uh, vi- videotaped the Knicks, um, Houston finals and then they played those he came back with all those tapes and played them on mongolian television and the country it was the highest rated show like in the history of mongolia and and within a couple of years every every backyard had a basketball hoop in it and the whole country was like indiana by the time i got there um so it was it was really cool The, the level of play wasn't so hot but people were crazy about the sport we always played to packed houses it was it was a lot of fun
0: It's crazy to me that you meet this guy. He's like, there's this thing, the Mongolian basketball. So there MBA. You quit your job. You move there. You do this thing. I mean, you must have been just have like a very naturally sort of risk taking adventurous (laughs) personality. Right. I mean, to have gone to the Soviet Union in the first place. And then you're like, let me just try Uzbekistan and see how that works out. You're going from country to country, picking up wherever sort of your fancy takes you. Do you Like, do you feel you still have that part of you? Do you miss that period of your life? And how do you think that it's been reflected in the work that you continue to do? Um,
2: I do miss it. Uh, Although, again, I was I was in my 20s. I felt incredibly physically strong and I didn't have any ties. You know, I'm married. I have three kids now. and I, I love my life. I could never do any of those things. Uh, but I, I definitely felt uh, and this was tied to what what I was trying to do personally. I had a lot of ambition as a young person to be a writer. And when I figured out that I couldn't. Um, that I wasn't gonna be able to to write fiction because I just couldn't. Uh one of my ideas was that I would be a nonfiction writer who would write about crazy adventures, right? And um and so in order to to have something really cool to write about, I had to essentially use myself as a character in all these uh scenes. So I, I was I was essentially trying to pick out uh, things to do that were, you know, that would be really, really interesting to write about. And I continued that later on, you know, when I came back, to moscow from mongolia I, I started this sort of series of reporting uh episodes where i would take odd jobs all around the former soviet union and then write about those experiences so i you know i laid bricks in siberia i made moonshine i worked uh, in an elephant cage in the moscow zoo um, i was a security guard i worked in a monastery like it all, all the all these things and all of that was just about uh, trying to find experiences that I thought would be interesting and also it, you know it's it's a genre of journalism that um, that I had studied in school uh, if you think about uh, things like, you know, people like Ida Tarbell or, you know, books like black, like me, um, the idea there was to be able to show the reader something firsthand by experiencing it yourself, which is, I think a very, it's a very, very valuable way of doing journalism because, um, you know, you're not even one step removed from, from the actual subject. Well, I read Hunter Thompson, uh, I guess, when I I started reading him when I was in my mid-teens. My father was a big fan as well, uh, and I loved Hunter Thompson's books. Um, I used to laugh hysterically at the things that he wrote. Uh, I remember going on road trips, and we used to read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas aloud and just being You know, laughing so much. Uh, But I knew very, very early on that um, he was a different kind of writer than I could be. He um, is a unique, sort of God given talent as a narrator. Uh, He's also incredibly creative uh, in ways that I think is beyond the reach of. Most normal writers. So I even though there are there's lots of embarrassing stuff, if you go back and look at my work where it's it's incredibly clear that I'm r- trying to rip him off, not successfully, um, you know, I, I I knew except for a couple of techniques like he would do things like um, go to a scene and then sort of set himself off as a human time bomb in, in a scene. And that would become the action that he would write about. I tried to steal some of those techniques in some cases. Um, didn't work out as well as it did with him. though. No, he's, he, he's really one of a kind.
0: I want to know more about when you were working as a bricklayer in Siberia or at the monastery or whatever. Like, which one of those experiences really sticks in your mind? Was the most interesting, exciting, scary? What were some of the sort of highlights, lowlights from that whole experience? <laughs>
2: Uh, they were all amazing. I, I, I used to travel with this guy. Um, so one of the first things I did is I worked as a professional clown in, um, in a theater in Moscow. It was the, it's called the Teatro Klonadi. It's the Moscow, uh, clown theater. And so I, I had met there this, this pair of clowns who were hilarious. They were also absolute drunkards, like actually quite a few Russian clowns. Um, And one of these guys became sort of a partner of mine. Like we would tour the country together and I would go with this clown from like province to province and we would talk our way into various work sites So um, one of the first jobs that we did together is we went to this monastery in Mordovia, which is sort of in central Russia, and um, we ended up working as construction workers uh, and we were paid in room and board. Uh, to help build you know some structures on the monastery grounds and i remember um, working it was it was next to a river called the moksha river which was so infested with mosquitoes that it was act- the river was not actually visible from about 100 yards away like that the, the the insects were that thick and we you had to cover every inch of your body in order to be to prevent from being devoured by the, by the bugs so i had a lot of experiences like that that were just unbelievably horrible the brick lane was one of many jobs that I had, where, like most Russians at the time, you I was paid in uh, chits for a commissary that the company owned. So it was like a throwback to 1880s America, where like a miner would be given, uh, you know, sort of uh, credits at the company store, and so you would work all day for a bag of rice. Basically, um, all those experiences were amazing. Uh, there was one time we worked at a. Uh, Actually, we didn't work at it. We, we were in a town that had a glass factory and the the people that we knew, are, we had some co-workers who had a night job working at this glass factory and they were paid in glasses. They had to go at night standing at the train station and trying to sell each glass uh, to people who got off the train to go to the bathroom and stuff like that. So there were a lot of horror stories like that.
1: Um, that is all beyond fascinating.
0: I I'm not sure I really believe that clown story. That doesn't, that sounds
1: like you just it, made it's that ab, one up. Ab,
2: ab, absolutely true.
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. basketball, me. pro basketball player Mongolia sounds made up too. Like it's just all, it's so wild.
2: Um, uh, uh, can I interrupt? I actually have one, one more funny story about the clown. Um, and then, which is we worked, we did it. We did a, a sort of an adventure together where we were, um, going to work as agricultural workers in this small area w- near his hometown of Arzamas. And we went to this little village and uh, basically everybody in the area was paid um, not money, but it was all barter, a whole Barter economy and most people were paid in uh, sort of moonshine vodka, which uh, which, which they call samagón. And uh, we ended up just cutting to the chase. We decided to just make the the samagón ourselves rather than do the the field work, which turned out to be really miserable. So we we built this titanium still. We started making all the samagón. We were like going around town trading it for stuff, and then on the way back. Um, we got completely hammered uh, and he and a bunch of other people put me in a train station uh, and I collapsed face down on the train station, holding the still. And I woke up in a jail cell in the, um, uh, in the train station. And there was a cop uh, basically who had three things on his desk. He had my American passport, he had the still, and then he had an ID that that showed me as an employee of the Moscow Thick Clown Theater. And he was trying to figure that out um, and never could. Uh, anyway, it was just an image that I always, I always thought was the funniest thing in the world. Waking up out of a haze and seeing this cop try to figure that out was, was really, really funny. <laughs> Jesus Christ. See, I would, th- I would say this next question that I'm going
1: to ask seems crazy, but based off everything you said, this seems relatively tame. Um, at one point, you, you used heroin. Can mm, you tell me not, about not one point? <laughs> OK, so in, but that's even more interesting. Could you tell me about your history with it, your use with it? Would you consider yourself an addict if you do? How did you get off of it? Tell me all that stuff.
2: Yeah, I, I was the editor of a newspaper in Russia called co-editor of a newspaper in Russia called The Exile, Um It started off, it it was a club guide, uh, where the bulk of our advertisers were nightclubs. And, um, even though I was kind of the straight man in the operation, whose job was to do a lot of the normal reporting, um, you know, there was a lot of partying that went on. And during that time period, I got introduced to, um, heroin, which was also becoming a big fashionable thing in Moscow at, at, at the time. And, um, yeah, I had a I had a pretty serious problem with it. Uh, I don't think that's unique, um, but it was something that I that I definitely struggled with. Um, you know, I came back to the states. Basically, the way I kicked that was I came back to the states and I didn't have a connection anymore. So it was a little bit like that scene in Train Spotting where, you know, you know, you lock yourself in a room and just deal with it. Um, so. That, that was sort of a lucky break for me. But it, yeah, obviously, I think uh, I, I was an addict at one time and um, had a really serious problem and, and would counsel my children when they get to be of age to be very, very uh, disciplined and staying away from it.
1: What did it impact your writing, if at all?
2: So... Um, one of the one of the things that I think is uh, both is interesting about opiates as opposed to other kinds of drugs is that it, it, you actually can function as a human being, um, and I don't I don't think it has. You you, you can write on heroin, and I did. Uh, I don't think it's good for you though, uh, and the, for the same reasons that uppers and you know things like speed are bad for for writing for writing. You know, even though. There are plenty of writers who, who um, have a history with that, Hunter Thompson uh, among them. But the problem with, with that is that, you know, writing depends a lot on uh, good judgment and being sensitive to when you're not making sense or when you've gone on for too long or when you're not being funny and all those things. And your judgment is clouded when you're on any kind of substance. So um, it's not I, I think ultimately it's a big net negative to do drugs and and try to write
0: that's really interesting because yeah you can feel like this is while you're writing you're like this is amazing right oh, yeah. <laughs> this is like the best work i've ever done and it flows out so easily and then right. you go back and read it the next day and like eh. it's just, you <laughs> this know, wasn't that all that i thought it would yeah. be yeah. i do i do want to push I've had that experience i do want
1: to push back a little bit though because there's some like Joe Rogan has talked about this in terms of comedy that a lot of comedians write when they're high on weed and it helps them. And some great, you know, musical pieces have been written when people are high on various drugs because, you know, certain drugs give you certain feelings. And so you could write some sort of like mellow, calm, relaxing song when you're high on heroin. And when you're high on cocaine, you could write some sort of like uppity, fast paced moving thing, you know? So in some ways I I take your point and I'm not discounting, you know, what you went through by any stretch of the imagination. But it's interesting that with some people, it seems to have more of a positive effect and with others, it seems to have more of a negative effect.
2: Yeah, I don't think there's any question. If you look, I mean, I listen to Nirvana, uh, even at this age, um, Velvet Underground, uh, the Breeders, you know, all great rock bands all did a lot of heroin. Uh, I, I think I think you can do. There are some people who just deal uh, differently with substances than, than others, um, and there's an enormous amount of history of writers who've written under the influence uh, of all kinds of things, uh, booze included. I just don't happen to be one of those people. I think, you know, one of, uh, when I look back, um, you know, I, I tend to be somebody whose worst work is under the influence.
0: Interesting. And so do you feel like that past struggle with addiction, do you feel like it's still sort of present for you? Like, do you feel like it's told like you would never end up in that place again? Or do you feel like there's always that risk that you're very aware of?
2: I'm like the most boring person in history now and have been for probably 15 years. Um, I'm married, I have three kids. I almost never go out. Uh, and I love my life. I, I don't, I'm not particularly worried about, uh, any of that ever happening again. Um, among other things, because I'm getting older and I worry about things like mortality in ways that I didn't when I was when I was 20 and, and in my early 30s. So um, it's but of course, it's part of your personality. Uh, and you have to recognize that some people are just, you know, their their constitution is built to deal with things like that and others um, are not. And I I think I fall into that latter category. So you have to be aware of that.
1: Matt, of all the things that you've covered finance, media, politics, sports, what is your favorite and why? Which thing really inspired you the most and which is your best work?
2: Uh, it's so weird, but the thing I enjoyed absolutely the most writing about was, was um – financial services, and I would never have guessed that because I can't stand money. I never had even the slightest interest in uh, in covering finance. I never picked up the Financial Times once before um, 2008. Uh, I thought it was beyond boring, but what ended up happening after I got assigned to write a couple of stories about the financial crisis after 2008 is uh, I had a... a a meeting very early on because I was having a lot of trouble. I met with somebody who worked in the, in the industry and he told me, you know, basically you're trying to understand this as an economic story. When you look at it as a crime story, you'll, you'll get it. And from that moment, it it just clicked. And I became really, really into the intellectual challenge of trying to figure out all these various schemes because they are really, really, really difficult. Like there's a, there's a chapter I wrote in a book called the divide that's about the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. And, um, basically it's, it's about how a a bunch of people stole about $6 billion. Uh, I, you know, somebody I I talked to described it as the biggest bank robbery uh, nobody ever heard of. And, uh, in order to understand it, it was like taking a college level course and I had to fight through, you know, some of the most supremely boring language ever, ever written. But I, I just found that all that thrilling. I, I, I think that kind of work is really, really fascinating. And uh, I also found that it, for some bizarre reason that I don't really understand it, it it, it agreed with me in terms of uh, my writing. So I, I love that subject, definitely.
0: It's really hard to take something that's super complex. You have to understand it thoroughly in order to simplify it for a mass audience, which is what you were writing for. Um You know, from that experience, do you feel like that has changed the way that you viewed American politics and power writ large from getting into the like nitty gritty details of what was a massive crime story?
2: That's a great question. Uh, I remember when I first started working for Rolling Stone, the 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 first stories that they had me do were covering the campaign. So I was kind of doing the old Hunter Thompson beat, where I would fly around following candidates like John, John Kerry, and um, and I remember having this thought to myself, like American politics can't be this stupid. Like there has to be some level beyond this that uh, is more interesting than this story because, you know, it's just a bunch of platitudes and, uh, you know, the strategy that they were getting, the aides were trying to talk to me about at night and that they, they thought was fascinating. I just did not think was all that interesting. When I started covering the 2008 financial crisis, all of a sudden I had this insight, okay, well, this this is the real thing. This, this is what actually power is all about in America. Um, And here is where you see all the various machinations and they are as complicated as you would expect in a, in a superpower nation like America. And it it requires all the attention you could possibly muster to get it. Um, And so that was, that was an important moment for me because um, I finally felt like at least I was on the right track, you know, in terms of understanding some of these things, but American audiences are are presented with a hyper simplified version of what reality is supposed to be. And, and the, the reality of things that is, is that it's much more complicated and has almost nothing to do with this kind of left versus right thing that they're, they're told about on the news.
1: Yeah. So I remember, I think I, I learned it from you and by the way, your writing on the financial crisis was just absolutely phenomenal. You wrote in a way where everything sort of landed instantly. And I think that's the hallmark of a good writer. Um, The the thing that stuck with me was about Goldman Sachs, how they basically were just committing fraud as their business model. They would push on unsuspecting clients this idea that these packages, which were rated AAA, were wonderful packages, but it was subprime mortgages. And at the same time they were pushing these on unsuspecting clients, they were betting against the same packages they were selling as if they're profitable. So it was just fraud and it was kind of out in the open what to you are you know the the biggest takeaways of the subprime mortgage crisis and the great recession what are the the main points to take away from that whole episode
2: well there's there's a bunch of things number 1 yeah you're right absolutely it was it was um it was fraud. It was the, you know, so the apotheosis of the financialization era, right? So once upon a time in America, banking and the financial services industry was, was really about uh, putting capital together to invest in real-world business ideas that that would then be developed, right? So the classic use of an investment bank um, would be let's raise a whole bunch of money and build a factory to make, I don't know, cars, whatever it was. Then the cars would sell and then everybody would get paid and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In the late 70s, 80s, and then 90s, this new ethos developed where what Wall Street was really doing – um, was they were selling financial products and they were financializing the economy in a way that decoupled the uh, the process of raising money from the real world economy. There was a, a now a completely different economy that was based on trying to make money, sort of moving financial instruments around. And that's what the subprime mortgage crisis was. A bunch of people figured out that you could make securities out of Mortgages, uh, even very bad, very risky mortgages that that weren't worth very much, but you could kind of put them together in a mortgage hamburger and and sort of sell them to all kinds of clients all over the place, insurance companies, pension funds, whatever. It didn't matter, and they would not know how risky or how uh, in, you know how not valuable those securities were. And again, this was this is exactly what. Uh, you know these companies do in the financialization era. They're trying to sell you something. They're trying to sell you a product that really isn't worth very much and doesn't have a real big connection to the real world economy. And yeah, they were just this, they were just taking something worthless, disguising it as something that was worthwhile, and selling it everywhere. Uh, and it, uh, my take on that was that this had. This is, this is why people have so much resentment toward the upper classes in America right now, because there's no sense of noblesse, noblesse oblige at all. They were just using people, getting their signatures in the dotted line and ripping them off, using them as fodder for a fraud scheme. And um, yeah, to me, that was that was kind of the beginning of this sort of anti-elite movement. Was well, It was rooted in stuff like that.
0: Well, and the complexity was kind of the point. Right, because if exactly. it's simple and straightforward and people understand what's going on, then you don't have a game, right? Then your con is revealed. So the fact that it was so complex was actually an integral part of the fraud. I mean, I remember reading stories about because the assumption was mortgage debt is really safe, period. Because people don't want to lose their homes, so they will do everything they can to make their mortgage payments and that may be true to a large extent, but you get to a place where people just can't pay. So if you can't pay, you can't pay. And they would intentionally target people that they called they had like thin credit files, right, where they were maybe new immigrants. And so it's not that they had failed to pay their debts, et cetera. They just didn't have any debt because they were new to the country or they you know, didn't have a lot of credit cards. So it's not that they had the ability to pay, but they hadn't taken these big credit hits. So They would target people like that to get them in, to sign on the dotted line, like you said, hoping to snow them if English wasn't their first language, all the better because they couldn't understand, you know, all the language in the documents that they were signing. Talk to me more about, you said that to you is where this real anti-elite sentiment started. And you also said a minute ago that this kind of like left-right food fight that's portrayed on cable news isn't actually the real game that's going on here. Talk about some of those pieces and what you mean.
2: Yeah, uh, first of all, I just want to say your, your comment about the complexity being important, I think is exactly right. Like to this day, if you ask most people what a mortgage is, they think that you go to a bank, you get a mortgage, the bank still owns the mortgage, right? Like that they're somehow invested in whether or not you make your payments. Uh, uh, I would say probably 95 to, you know, 99% of Americans have no idea that that mortgage is sold off uh, within, a, you know, a month after you sign it to an investment bank, which chops it up and makes it part of this huge pool thing that, um, so you, you, your interests are not aligned with the, with the company that gave you the mortgage. Uh, it's a, a side thing. Anyway, I think what, what was important about the 2008 financial crisis is that it showed this kind of closed loop of influence. So there was a huge group of people who were engaged in this, um, in pumping up the speculative bubble, uh, taking out all the profits. And then when the whole thing collapsed, they they went running to the government and they all got made well again by um, a federal bailout. And, you know, Meanwhile, they were telling ordinary people who lost their homes or were foreclosed upon that, yeah, I'm sorry, there, there would be a moral hazard involved if we came and saved you. Uh, and I think most people for the first time understood, wow, there's, there's two sets of rules. Uh, there's one for these idiots uh, at places like Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns who just nearly blew up the universe and wiped out. You know according to some calculations 40 percent of the world's wealth selling all this crap around the world um they all got bailed out they all and they got golden parachutes and we invested huge amounts of the national treasury and fed money in saving all those folks uh and everybody else got you know buckus basically right and so the i think the value of occupy wall street is that they define where the real um axis of conflict was in America. I think their their description of the 1% versus the 99% much more accurately reflects what the the conflict is in American politics than Republicans versus Democrats, which is represented as this half versus half kind of uh, construction. It's much more accurate to say there's, there's a small group of people who have an enormous amount of influence who kind of live in these little archipelagos of wealth. Uh, here and around the world who have for whom the rules, normal rules don't apply. And then there's everybody else uh, who's kind of subject to, you know, the the open market, the free market and, you know, risk and all those other things. Um, And we may have some social ideas or or others, and we may be Republicans or Democrats based on those ideas. But uh, in other areas, we're all basically the same suckers. And so that's that's what I was trying to say.
1: So I wanna uh, I wanna get to more macro picture in a second. Uh, Crystal just touched on you know left versus right paradigm, elitist versus uh, anti elitist. But in terms of the two thousand eight subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession specifically, um, things like banning adjustable rate mortgages, which were Again, kind of like a scam, uh, bringing back Glass-Steagall, which separates commercial banking from investment banking, um, having leverage rules for these big banks, um, stopping Wall Street bailouts. What do you view as like the, the bottom line solutions to a lot of what went on?
2: I think the um, I think the most important thing that they could have done and didn't do was Break up companies that were already too big, right? Uh, so there were there were already rules mandating that banks couldn't be over a certain size, that they couldn't uh, hold over ten percent of uh, the deposits uh, in the country, and um, and we got to a point after two thousand eight where they started making decisions, you know, based upon the idea that these were systemically important companies uh, that we could not. Uh, charge with felonies or uh, revoke their charters. Um, they were now so big and so systemically important that we were going to have to bail them out, no matter what they did, um, no matter what kind of failure they incurred. They um, they were going to have to be saved. And for me, I, I think the the problem with that is that uh, essentially it turns those that small handful of companies into uh, permanent partners uh, of the government, uh, be- because they-, they cannot be allowed to fail. And and we one of the consequences of that we saw pretty early was that, um, for instance, the cost to borrow money for a small regional bank uh, was much much higher after 2008 than it was for J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, or Goldman Sachs, or uh, Bank of America because. The, the lenders knew that those other companies, those latter companies, would never be allowed to go out of business. They would always be able to pay their debts because ultimately we were on the hook for it. Um, but smaller companies uh, would have to pay more. And so it started this kind of cleaving um, into two categories of companies and interests in America. You had your super gigantic companies that are increasingly immune to risk. And we saw this again with the COVID bailouts last year, Um, you know, no matter what the company was, it was deemed systemically necessary to make sure that they did not go out of business. Whereas you know, if you own a small business, um, if you're just trying to get off the ground, then you are subject to the ruthless wiles of the free market. Uh, they'll, they'll hand you a copy of The Wealth of Nations and tell you to figure it out. Uh, that's your bailout. Um, I think that's incredibly dangerous. Again, it just creates a stratified society where there's there's risk and rules for one group and none for the other. And that's dangerous.
0: You know, I wanted to get your reaction to you. We interviewed um, Dylan Radigan here, who, um, you know, was another one. And, and by the way, I don't think it's an accident that the people who did the best work during the financial crisis and really understood it to its core are still some of the people that seem to understand American politics best, as you were laying out, because they actually get what the real game is. But we interviewed Dylan, and he made this comment about one of the things that they learned in that bailout is that they could they could print as much money as they wanted and it wouldn't be a problem. So then it's just a, a choice of who you're going to help, who you're going to get rid of that risk for. Um, do you think that that's accurate? Do you think that was one of the sort of like elite policy level learnings from that bailout?
2: Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. The, there was a there was a huge initial concern that um, – we can't just have the Fed endlessly print money to bail ourselves out of this problem. You know, I remember talking to a guy who worked in um, the, I think it was the New York State Department of Insurance, who was saying, you know, with all these bailouts, all these companies are just they're drinking themselves sober. You know, like that was the idea. Like basically, we're taking all this largesse from from the uh, central banking apparatus, and you know, it's. It's the same thing that got us into trouble, was this a sort of cheap money, we're inflating these speculative bubbles with it, uh, and then when it blows up, we just go right back to the well and we, we use it again. There was a widespread belief at the time that this would uh, inevitably result in, in an inflationary disaster, uh, that sooner or later this would kind of bounce back on everybody. And I think I, I might have even been one of the people who who uh, mm-hmm. believed that, having been told it by so many uh, economists. But after, you know, more than a decade of relief programs that were either uh, covertly or overtly tied to the Fed, whether it was quantitative easing, it didn't matter, you know, or, or the latest COVID bailouts, they've discovered that actually they can just sort of keep doing this endlessly, which is one of the reasons why um, it's now particularly offensive that they they continue to emphasize rescuing people with with. Uh, Financial assets. Uh, so, these bailouts, the we've seen a massive increase in wealth inequality since 2008, and that's because if you own financial assets, uh, you're going to do better, and if you don't, uh, you, you know, you're going to stay in place or do, or do worse. Which is why, um, again, there's there's so much frustration out there, and there's there are a lot of people saying, well, if you're going to spend the money on them, why don't you do that with us? And I think that's a that's a reasonable question to ask.
1: Yeah. So. Um, to that point, there is an interesting debate that goes on where you have more right-wing economists like Austrian economists or, you know, guys like uh, Hayek and von Mises and and Milton Friedman, um, where they would argue, the problem is the bailouts full stop. There should be no bailouts and and that's the way it should be. And then you have, you know, people from the Keynesian school of thought or, you know, the new one is uh, modern monetary theory, MMT school of thought, where they say, no, the problem isn't isn't bailouts as such the problem is the kind of bailouts that it was and we're describing here like the bailouts of wall street and the bailouts of people with assets as you accurately point out that's the problem or like with the cares act recently again where was that money going it was going to these corporations with no strings attached and they turn around and fire people anyway so do you agree with the idea because you brought up the inflation point there do you agree with the idea that The problem isn't bailouts full stop. The problem is that what they should have done is, in the subprime mortgage crisis, bail out the people, bail out the homeowners, and that would have been... The approach we should have taken, because you know, I think Japan is a good example that the inflation risk has been overhyped. They've been saying, "There's oh, a debt crisis in Japan. There's going to be mass inflation." It never comes, and it's because they have a sovereign currency and it's a pretty stable political system. So, do you agree that th- we should have done bailouts, but the bailout should be basically for regular people as opposed to billionaires and corporations?
2: I I, I lean in that direction. Um, I think. One of the things I tried to avoid during the last ten or uh, so years was um, getting into questions that I that I worried were a little bit above my pay grade. Like I, I tried to avoid sort of macroeconomic issues because I just don't have the schooling in it. Um, I, you know, I, I, I can't speak authoritatively on whether these things will, will cause inflation or not. i all I can really do is report what other people say about that. Um, I will say I feel generally that. My instinct is that you're right, uh, that uh, if we are going to do a bailout that, um, you know, certainly uh, a bailout of some kind was necessary in both in 2008 and probably also last year uh, and this year as well. And if you're going to do that, uh, I I don't see any excuse for uh, bailing out Goldman Sachs and JPMorgan Chase. Uh, and not bailing out ordinary homeowners like that doesn't make any sense to me. I, I will say, though, that I, I do think that there should be some room for not bailing out in some cases. And what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, sort of failure is one of the most important regulatory mechanisms in in the kind of economy that we have now. I'm not saying it's the best system that, that you could have, but. Allowing a company that is corrupt or engages in bad practices to go out of business, uh, it's important that we we are able to do that. Uh, and so what happened in 2008 was a whole slew of companies that should have gone out of business did not. Um, because they were deemed systemically important. So I, I while, while I agree with you in, in, in a general sense, I think we also have to preserve the idea that um, sometimes companies just have to go out of business. They should go out of business because they they screwed up. And um, so yeah, that, that's my thought on that. Yeah. I agree with that.
0: Yeah. So, Matt, you know, I think probably that I uh, recite some of your teachings from Hate Inc. all the time. Mm. (laughs) and It very much informs my view of the media um, because you you really lay out. I mean, to me, this was very revelatory of like, okay, what are they going to do for ratings? They had the Cold War. They had a great enemy that they could go after and use that for ratings. Then you had 9-11. You had the war on terror. And then once that the fear over that sort of subsided, it was like, okay, well, what do we do? now. How about we terrify everybody about their neighbors? And that's the gift that keeps on giving because the neighbors aren't going anywhere. People who support a different candidate than you or hold a different ideological belief than you, like they're not going anywhere. So that can just that can keep going to the end of time. What is your view of how media outlets are adjusting to now Trump's out of the White House. He's actually relatively quiet now that he doesn't have his Twitter account. He's much less actually in the news cycle than I expected that he would be. Um, How do you think that they are handling that? And what should we kind of expect?
2: Yeah, I just wrote about this. Uh, Obviously, the the returns are already starting to come in, that there are, are across the board significant drops in viewership, for all of the sort of primetime cable news shows, both in Fox and in CBS and, and, and CNN, I'm sorry, CNN and MSNBC, uh, although they're more pronounced in those latter two. Uh, and undeniably, this is the Trump effect, uh, as, as I've written about, and many other people have written about many times, the, the cable news business, and to a, a broader extent, the news business in general, uh, saw big bumps in subscribers, clicks, hits, eyeballs uh, went from the moment that Trump entered the race in in, uh, in the summer of 2015. He's gone now, and the, the way they structured their entire business model was on this... We're sort of the anti-Trump network. They marketed themselves this way. You know, democracy dies in darkness. This is who we are was was MSNBC's uh, slogan. Uh, you know, truth. I forget what the Times was. It was something like truth matters. I it was some absurd thing. But they all marketed themselves as sort of openly anti-Trump uh, outlets and so, what do you do when there's no more Trump? Like you, you've trained, you've spent five years training your audience that they're going to be on this campaign against something, and the thing is no longer there. So, I, I, you know, I warned at the beginning of this that there was going to be a problem because, uh, you, you know, you can't once you step into cross the line into becoming a sort of. Um, you know, political rhetoric or political propaganda, you you can't just sort of walk back and start reporting the news again, like in a neutral way. They're going to have to find some new object to obsess over, whether it's Tucker Carlson or Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever it is, or they're going to lose, you know, uh, massive amounts of audience. And I think we're already seeing that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's actually already happening. They they did a trial run with Marjorie Taylor Greene. People <laughs> cared for like seven and a half minutes, and then they were like, this is boring. And then now they're trying Tucker Carlson. Brian Stelter just did this big segment where he was giving Tucker way too much credit. He's like, this is the next Trump. He's right here. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think you, the point of your book is spot on. And something that I, I've noticed is you were really good in... In the Trump era of doing something which was phenomenally difficult for most people in the political landscape, which is you were very critical of him on the substantive issues where one should be critical of him, but you didn't take the bait on like the sort of dumbed down reflexive reactionary, you know, critiques. And so, you know, one thing that comes to mind for that is, is Russia gate and how you were very critical of that. And you were correct to be critical of that. The Mueller report basically came back, came back with nothing on Russia. So how did you walk that line of knowing when to be critical and, and what was it like on the campaign trail following this guy? I mean, you were at his rallies, and stuff.
2: Yeah, I was. Um, I, I found Trump fascinating from the beginning. Um, the first thing I ever wrote about him was a big feature in Rolling Stone that uh, I think was called something like How How America Made Trump Unstoppable. And uh, I'm actually pretty proud of that piece because I, I ended up kind of calling a lot of what was going to happen later. It, Trump, it seemed to me very clear that his his idea of his campaign was that he was going to become this omnivorous devourer of resentment, and he was going to present himself as the outside um, sort of conquering hero, the the traitor to the Olympus of the elites who knew how things actually operated. and But he was going to take on those corrupt people way up above who had screwed you in 2008 or, you know— uh, you, didn't matter what it like he, he was looking in all directions and noticing that that people were angry about all sorts of things. And he offered himself as kind of a one stop shopping um, solution to everybody's resentments. And I immediately thought that he was basically insincere about all those predictions. But I I also thought that he would be very, very successful uh, doing that. And he was. Um but was, what was amazing to me was that there was this moment where uh, I think a lot of the people in the press decided that it's not our job to just sort of figure out why this guy is succeeding. We have to go beyond that and make sure that he doesn't get into office or and make sure that people vote against him or do all those things. And I think the instant they did that, they, they forgot the more important issue of trying to understand what's going on which is how they got suckered into stories like Russiagate or, or any of the other scandals that surrounded him. Because I think the, the, our most important job is just to try to understand and make it clear for, for audiences what things are what's happening and why. And we were not able to tell them that once Trump got elected. We were too busy telling them that Trump was bad and that, that he had to be stopped. Uh, and I don't think that's our job, personally.
0: Well, speaking of Russiagate, I did want to get your reaction to this new intelligence report that came out that said Russia meddled and Iran meddled, but not China, and Russia was for uh, Trump, but Iran was for Biden and the way that the media covered all of this. What did you think of all of that? Oh, and they also, somebody picked up, they just invented out of thin air that this validated the idea that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian misinformation, which isn't (laughs) even in the report at all. What did you make of kind of the, the report, the media analysis of the report, all of that stuff?
2: Yeah. uh, Before we started talking today, I was actually going through and, um, making a list of all the different uh, stories that were attributed to official or intelligence sources that later turned out to be totally wrong. Um, So, once again, we've seen they've they've just sort of given us a pronouncement about something. They don't give us any indication of what their evidence is is for anything, Uh, and then people just re-report it as though it's gospel. Uh, You always have to be careful when you know, you know, the CIA, the FBI, the ODNI, whatever it is, when they tell you something like you got to at least have some skepticism about whether they're telling you the truth because they've have a long history of lying. The, the And the thing with the Hunter Biden story, which was something that I was really, really troubled by, not because I thought the Hunter Biden story was important. I actually didn't. I didn't think it was that huge of a story. But the censorship of it, you know, the, the, the ability of Facebook and Twitter to block access to it, I thought was historic and scary. Uh, and, and yet what we're seeing now is all these reporters are are, are cheering, you know, this idea that, we're, oh, we're not going to allow Russia to meddle in our uh, news business anymore. And to me, I think that just re- is a, reflects a total misunderstanding of what our jobs are. Um, you know, if the, if the Hunter Biden emails are real – Then we have to take them seriously in the same way that we have always traditionally taken seriously any kind of stolen material or or whistle, you know, stuff that was uh, whistleblowers uh, took away from their employers. Um, It doesn't the provenance doesn't matter. What matters is whether it's true or not. And I think that story was true.
1: So uh, last question for you, Matt. Where do you think we are? Crystal and I were having this conversation recently. We've probably had it with a number of guests now. Where do you think we are in terms of the political era? Are we still in effectively the Reagan era of scariest words or I'm from the government and I'm here to help? Or are we entering some new phase with These, you know, a number of COVID relief packages that have just passed, where people are beginning to accept that perhaps government in many situations is the answer. So, is it more of like a a New Deal type era? Are we re entering that? Are we still in a neoliberal corporate era? Where do you think we are?
2: That is a fascinating and difficult question. Um, I, I, I do think we're in a new era in a couple of different ways. We've seen, um, Significant changes in attitudes, even among Republican voters, toward relief packages, uh, which is new. You you would never have seen that in the Reagan years, like the you know people being in favor of those uh, you know relief checks uh, as part of the latest pandemic um, uh, bill, uh, and and this whole strategy essentially of using the Fed as a piggy bank to pay for. You know, massive, um, uh, you know, bills. Although they haven't gone to the next step of making it structural, I think all of these things are so far temporary. Um, that's a new thing in government. I think that's really, really interesting. I'm really curious to see where that goes. However, I will say that the m- the bigger change that that um, that I'm focused on a lot more. Is this idea of um, the kind of growing partnership between Silicon Valley and uh, and the government in sort of controlling the reality that people see these days? Um, we've never had a media regulator in this country, like a federal media regulator that actively meddled in uh And what people saw and what what news people heard. And we're heading in a very aggressive direction um, toward that now. Uh, And that, I think, is that's more like the stuff of dystopian novels. That's like that's not um, a Reagan situation. This is this is something entirely new. And I'm very worried about where that's going like that, that. So that's that's my main concern right now.
0: Yeah, sounds like a subject for a great book. You got anything in the works?
2: <laughs> no, no, unfortunately, but someone should write it. That's for
1: sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, tell everybody where they could find you on Twitter, and tell everybody about your Substack.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm at uh, at mtaibi uh, on Twitter, and I have two Substacks now because my um, the uh, podcast that I co-host with Katie Halper, uh, Useful Idiots, is now on Substack. So you can find that at. Um, usefulidiots.substack.com, and then my own uh, my own site is just taibi at substack.com, and uh, you can find all of our stuff in those two places.
0: Go subscribe, Matt. Thank you so much yes. for your time. Um, you are fascinating and brilliant and insightful, and it's always a wow. pleasure to get to chat. Well,
2: th- thanks for uh, to, for the invite to, to talk. It's been really really cool, and uh, hope hope to talk to you again sometime soon.
1: So there he is, Matt Taibbi, really, really fascinating guy. Um, Before the interview, it's interesting because I sometimes, with certain guests, I want to talk about them. Mm -hmm. And with other guests, I want to talk more, you know, big picture policy stuff Mm -hmm. and whatnot. I thought beforehand going into the Taibbi interview, I want to talk just policy with him. That's what I was thinking. Then when I looked into him more, I was like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. There's a lot I,
0: not going on here. I want
1: to talk about a lot more than policy with him. <laughs> yeah, so he has a really fascinating backstory. I'm not... Did, I don't even think his family knows he was a professional basketball player in Mongolia, you know, and a professional <laughs> so baseball player in Uzbekistan or like I, what?
0: I had heard him talk with Katie on Useful Idiots about the Mongolian basketball thing. So I actually knew that part. But when he was going on about like, yeah, and I like, got in with a clown show. And, clown like, this, like Drunken clown. It was my best friend. And then we traveled. To, I mean, it's like. You, this didn't happen. You just made this up. It this, sounds ridiculous. It, it sounds totally ridiculous. But go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's just funny because I mean, I did know some pieces of that backstory. Mm-hmm. I knew about his reporting in the Soviet Union. I knew that's why he had kind of, you know, he kind of saw through the Russiagate stuff from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But I do think it is very the fact that he had all those experiences and was so incredibly adventurous and in all these different foreign countries, like I do think that may be part of why he's been able to sort of see through the veneer of American politics better than a lot of journalists who are from here and have lived here and a sort of Because when you're, it's like the, you know, the, the fish in the fish bowl thing, you Mm -hmm. don't realize the water that you're swimming in until you remove yourself from the water and look at it from the, the outside. You go, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. And so I do think that has given him kind of like unique ability to have insight past the veneer and the surface level of what's going on here.
1: That's an interesting point. Um... Yeah, so in other words, because he's been such a deep outsider his whole life, it Mm -hmm. allows him to see everything for what it is.
0: Yeah, Um, and also I think when you've been like deported from uzbekistan and had like government like the equivalent of the kgb come to your door some people being mean to you on twitter or whatever and calling you a russian asset i think that probably just doesn't face you as much I'm, either I'm, I'm, like,
1: oh, without even asking him i'm convinced he's already in the <laughs> club my club of like i just don't read any of it why would i read any of it that would be a ridiculous waste of time he engages a lot on twitter does he he does yeah oh yeah actually you're right he does yeah. i have seen him engage on twitter mm-hmm. Matt, don't do that, man. Uh, Save yourself. No, he didn't. Nobody enjoys that. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Glenn enjoys it. Oh, Glenn enjoys it. You're right. Glenn is the only person on the planet who's like, yes, fight me on Twitter. Yes. (laughs) Um, So it seems like, and he he kind of said this, didn't he? That like he admitted he tries to create these experiences to then write about them. That's what he did. Like he wanted That to was be, the idea, yeah. He wanted to be a fiction writer, realized he doesn't have the ability to write fiction, so he was basically like, what if I make my life sort of like fiction to then write about that, since I could write nonfiction. <laughs> if I live the nonfiction fiction life, right? you know, like I am a clown, I am a professional Brick basketball player. Bricklayer in Siberia. Bricklayer in Siberia, by the way. What? Siberia has like six buildings you lay in bricks and it's always and negative that's how 80 built degrees built them all apparently <laughs> it's always freezing there too like I, I he makes me feel like the idiot I am because I'm the opposite of worldly like I've I've been to Canada and I've been to Puerto Rico which is a US territory that's the furthest I've been
0: but I kind of think, I mean, look, everybody, I'm I'm a Kyle uh, apologist and obviously By biased in this regard, <laughs> but I do feel like everybody's experience gives them kind of a unique lens. So I actually think the fact, because most Americans are like you, mm-hmm. they've, That's right. they've traveled a little bit, you know, they yeah. know what the country is. They've maybe been to Canada. They've maybe mm-hmm. been to, you know, the Caribbean or something like that or Puerto Rico. Um, but they haven't, they're not living in the Soviet Union in Uzbekistan Mm -hmm. like going to climb college. No, I think that gives you a little bit more of a a touch and a sense of what the average American experience is like than a lot of people on the left seem to bring to their analysis. That's what
1: I always say, Chris. That's my personal analysis of the situation. I think you're right. I am amazing, aren't I? (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, that was that was a great interview. I loved every aspect of it. The thing I loved about it was we went from discussing his personal life and his wild stories. And then we seamlessly transitioned into policy, politics, macro picture stuff. And yeah, the interview had a flow to it that, you know, other interviews perhaps don't. And you don't, usually when you have a guest, it's one or the other. Mm -hmm. They'll give you an amazing personal, story and, you know, their lives are fascinating, but they can't really touch on the political as much or vice versa. Somebody's really good at touching on the political, but they're sort of lacking in the personal. Or they
0: don't, or they're just uncomfortable going into depth there. But I think with Matt, I do see that the part that was really interesting to me, well, it was all really interesting, but um, when he was talking about how much he loved covering the financial crisis And that he knew nothing about finance before Mm -hmm. that, was totally disinterested in money, which, again, I think gave him that like outsider perspective Mm -hmm. of once he was able to handle the technical um, terminology and and grasp what was really going on, he was able to put it in a context that really helped people like you, help people like me be able to get what was going on and what the stakes were and what the implications were. And I thought it was fascinating when he said that that really changed changed his whole understanding of American politics yes. because he'd felt like it can't be this stupid. Like yes. I'm running around after John Kerry whatever like the strategies that they're telling about this is all silly. It's platitudes. all just platitudes, yeah. it's all shallow, surface level. He's like there must be another game going on here. And so when he dug into the guts of the financial crisis, it was revelatory of like oh this is the real game. These are the real actors, and this is what's actually going on here. I also thought it was interesting how he talked about the usefulness of the Occupy Wall Street movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, it reminded me of the interview we did with Bosker Sankar of Jacobin, where he was talking about how you need a divided politics, but you need it divided along the correct lines. Right,
1: along class lines. And
0: Trump has divided it in a very not useful way, and Occupy had the, the sort of germs of the right type of Mm -hmm. division within American politics. I thought that was very interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's one of these people, he's made this point a million times. He's very critical of just the traditional left, right paradigm in politics. He think it's, he thinks it's, outdated, silly, doesn't tell us the full story. This is not
0: the real game that's being played. Right,
1: exactly. Again, which is why, to your point, why perhaps one of the reasons he felt like on the campaign trail with John Kerry seeing traditional politics is like, this is not the real thing. There's got to be something more to it. And then he's like, oh, this is it. When he saw the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession and he learned about it. And I will say, anybody who's ever learned from me about the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession, because I've talked about it quite a bit. Yeah. They're really learning from him because mm. I got a lot of my stuff from him. Yeah, it's like my media critique is like I learned from hating, right? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. incorporated
0: it into yeah what I'm doing there.
1: He has the way of describing it in standard, understandable terms, and I really do think that's the hallmark of a great writer and a great communicator in general. If you you want to talk in a way where everybody can understand it, and if you're actively trying to not do that that's a smug, elitist prick thing to do. Like talking away where your average Joe and Jane are like, yeah, I get what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. And he described all that stuff in that exact way. And I was really happy because when I asked him that question, I didn't know what he was going to answer. When I said, hey, what was your, what work felt the most fulfilling to you? What work meant the most to you? Is it the stuff you did on politics, on media, on sports, on finance? He did all this stuff. I said, which one felt, the most important to you and like really touch something real in you. And he was like finance. And that made me happy because I think that actually shows like that work is phenomenal. And that work sort of, I mean, we're, we're, Way removed from. We're thirteen years removed from from it happening, and we're still talking
0: about his work. Well, not only are we talking about his work, but we're still living through the ramifications. Oh, of
1: totally. Well, and uh,
0: which is why it's not an accident that that him, that Dylan Radigan, that Matt Solar, the people that really got that crisis and wrote about it or commented on it and really understood what was going on, are still some of the most prescient and insightful commentators that we have.
1: And compare that to. What's going on in mainstream media right now, where all the same idiots who got everything wrong, (laughs) people who were like vociferous (laughs) advocates for the war in Iraq and, and were, you know, repeating the propaganda and the lies every step of the way. Those people have been rewarded. They've failed up. And that actually gets to why, you know, traditional media, elite media is despised among the public. It's historically distrusted Mm -hmm. at the moment. Mm -hmm. But then, like you said, you have somebody like Taibbi and others. He's on Substack now, and he makes about a quadrillion dollars every 17 seconds because people are like, I like what you have to say. I think you're, you know, I think you're on to something. And so they pay to see what he has to say, you know?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. No, that's absolutely it. So it's always um, I'm always extraordinarily grateful when I get a little bit of Matt's time because he has he is one of the rare people that look nobody's right about everything, but he's one of the rare people who has been right on most of the significant large questions of our time. And by the way, it's not an accident that the people who are consistently wrong are also the ones that are. Rewarded consistently in mainstream media, it's like part yeah. of the job well, to they go along with whatever the official narrative is. Is part of the job, no matter how silly or ridiculous. Repeat it is. M- whatever. So that's why you get what you get.
1: Repeat whatever the moneyed interests want you to repeat. They're they're propagandists. They are paid propagandists. But I have to correct you. I'm yeah. right about everything.
0: Mm. Sorry. Well, that just like goes without saying. Sorry.
1: I mean it is obvious so I don't I was hesitant whether or not to correct you but I was gonna correct you anyway uh, let, let me do a shameless plug real quick okay um, so uh, if you're listening to this through audio on a any of the podcast platforms whichever one you happen to prefer I love you to death uh, you can continue doing that or you could pay five dollars a month and see the video so everybody, uh, consider that if you haven't yet. It's a great way to support the show, support Crystal and I. Just view it as like a $5 tip per month and you get to see this lovely face over here <laughs> and this <laughs> grotesque face over here. Um, I got my glasses on today. Everybody can tell. My I had my contacts in. You're for, trying to look
0: smart for Matt, weren't you?
1: Yes, that's it. There is a, th- th- that effect is real. I don't care what anybody says. That effect, if somebody sees you in glasses, they're like, I bet that guy's kind of (laughs) smart. But if you see me without it, that guy's probably a prick. That guy (laughs) definitely, like, yells at people, you know? goes to the gym, like, asshole. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, no, there there really is something to that. I do
0: kind of judge dudes that go to the gym too much, to be honest with
1: you. Oh, who doesn't? Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, you know, anybody who's too vain, doesn't matter the gender, if you're too vain, yeah, that's that's. I think that's a deep character flaw that speaks to a number of issues. I'm getting way too judgy. <laughs> I was, uh, we were having a good time, and all of a sudden, I'm judging people viciously. <laughs> we're going to the gym. Anyway, what was I doing? Right, shameless plug. Yeah, so you can listen on any of the podcast platforms you want. Everything drops uh, Saturday. Uh, subscribe on Substack for free uh, if you want to hear the audio because you get it as soon as it drops. You don't have to wait. You'll know immediately. It'll be emailed to you. You'll know it drops. Or again, pay. $5 a month, and you can get the video on Friday, which is, of mm-hmm. course, the most glorious option imaginable. Yes, anyway, the, the, so concludes the shameless plug.
0: Yes, indeed. And last note on that is um, you don't want to miss the incredible, brilliant newsletters that Piper puts together oh, absolutely. for us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, go, those go out to everybody, whether you're paying subscriber or not paying subscriber. So definitely make sure you check those out as well.
1: Absolutely. All so. right, guys.
0: Thank you so much for hanging out with us this week, and we will see you again next week.